but it didn't curtail our travels and our visit, and the Lord blessed, and everyone who went came back. I don't know if that's good, (laughs) but that's what happened. And we had no mishaps or problems, and yet unsettledness prevails, not just in the Middle East, but even in the United States. It's a worldwide malady, unsettledness. Some of my relatives said, what is your problem? Why are you going to Israel where it's so dangerous? So is Houston. Welcome to the real world. This is the way it is. It's not the real world of God's design. We can read about that early in Genesis. This is the real world. Uh, as a result of the corrupting influence of our sin. Don't like that, uh, but it's true. The the um, paradise of the garden, that's God's design. Now welcome to the real world. Uh, and the Lord has allowed us to run our experiment of life lived without him. How we doing? No, not good. Uh, it will get better, but not before it gets worse. So you just need to know the order of things, you, I, lest we be filled with undue dismay. We are told in advance of what has to happen before the return of the Lord Jesus in the establishment of his rule and reign on earth. He will make straight all that which we have made crooked and can't fix. But before it happens, um, a a lot of things have to happen that we're not going to be entirely pleased with. We'll hint at some of those things as we read the text. Brother Chuck? Um, they are, the average person is very confused because we have historically been quite friendly and supportive. And now we seem to be sending, I'm just answering Brother Chuck's question, and uh, I'm just telling you what they say. They're quite confused with things like that, uh, that a, a Secretary of Defense, even if Israel is preparing a preemptive attack, do you announce that? Um, so they're just perplexed about the whole thing. And even though you could, you see ladies pushing baby carriages in school, kids going to school and life as usual, still um, the military behind the scenes in a, is in a state of heightened um, alert and readiness. Iran is 800 miles away. Their missiles could hit Tel Aviv, a large population center. They have three times as many foot soldiers as does Israel. And the mantra in Israel is never again. Uh, they do not want to act unilaterally. Uh, they would like to be respectful of our position here but they won't go under. 
actually, the reason they won't go under is not because of anything they do. <laughs> now, that's the problem. They think their strong military is their savior. So they're in darkness as much as many here are and all the rest, but they're getting... They also think... You know what's happening in Damascus, in Syria? Uh, Assad um, is the is the leader of Assyria, and his rule and reign is really being challenged, which is unheard of. Because in the Arab world, um, the your successor is your son. That's how it is. It's not an election kind of a deal. So uh, Assad's dad was the dictator in Syria. Now, Assad is the dictator, but uh, we have what we call Arab Spring. You see it in Egypt and in other places. And so all of these autocratic rulers are being challenged. And a lot of thinking is... Um, because he knows he's being challenged, um, it may be time to attack Israel to distract uh, his people <laughs> from focusing on him. So you're seeing a lot of stuff being stirred up in Egypt in the south, Syria in the north. Uh, interesting, interesting things s- sort of happening. And... Um, there are many citizens of Israel who hate us and hate Israel. What? And 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 you you will forgive me, but but those are uh, Palestinian Muslims. I was with our group going into um, Antonia Fortress, which is where the Lord was imprisoned while being tried by Caiaphas. You can go there and see the actual stones. Uh, that he and the Roman guards stood on, and in it are engraved games that the Roman soldiers played while they were trying to occupy their... They're still there 2,000 years later. So I was the last one in our group going in. Um, uh, I usually bring up the rear so that none of our folks get lost. And as I'm going in, a man approaches me, typical, uh, to, uh, to, to sell postcards. And I responded to him as I told all people, be firm yet polite. So I said to him, no, thank you. And he whispered in my ear, may God finish off the United States and Israel. It's a powder keg that can go off in a second. If the Muslim world perceives that Israel or the United States is going to a- attack another Muslim country, namely Iran, um, it's a powder keg. But you don't have to go to Israel for that to happen. Welcome to the United States. Because there are just as many who have just as much hatred for our way of life here as there. It's quite remarkable. To me, this is democracy gone astray on the Israeli side and on the United States side. So it used to be called sedition and treason when you uh, have a position leading to the demise of the country that has extended to you the rights and privileges of citizenship. But today we protect the rights unless you're a Christian. So it's an interesting kind of a day, for sure. So things are going 
are going to happen for sure. And our text is going to talk a little. Let me get into the text. Our text is going to talk a little, little bit about it. Now, Brother Chuck has been taking us through, if I got this right, Luke chapter 12. I hope I got this right. Um, and because uh, I, I studied it last night, Brother Chuck, I woke up three o'clock in the morning, not because I'm so spiritual. I have jet lag. <laughs> so I thought, oh, no, I have to do Bible study. <laughs> so uh, if this is a little disjointed, it happened at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, so anyway, Luke 12, just to remind you, um, the whole context has been... Um, Get ready for the return of Christ. <laughs> Do you believe Jesus is coming again? What has to happen before he returns? Well said, nothing. So we can call his return the imminent return of Christ. It's a word theologians use, imminent. That means nothing has to be done before. Now, there have been times when a lot of things in God's schedule of events had to take place before his return. But now there ain't none. You know what one of the key events is, in my this is opinion, that had to take place before the return of Messiah? Yeah, 1948. One of our first steps over, uh, over there, we landed in Tel Aviv. They have one airport, so Ben-Gurion Airport. So then we got there about 9 o'clock in the morning, but I don't want people to sleep yet. I, I try to keep them up so they can adjust to the Israeli time. So you get... Our people are glassy-eyed, comatose, irritable, moody. Uh, Rachel, are you here? That kind of describes you, doesn't it? No, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Rachel was there. So anyway, uh, one of our first steps was to what's called Independence Hall, where Israel in May 14th, 1948, was declared a state. That's not a biblical site. It's the fulfillment of biblical events because the prophets tell us about an uh, in gathering in the land. It's quite remarkable. It's never happened that a nation dispersed for thousands of years would be reconstituted. So that, in my opinion, is an event that had, had to take place prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Well, it's, it's done taking place. There are Jews there from, from all over the world. This is not a testimony to the Jews by no means. This is the testimony to the fact that God keeps his word. So anyway, uh, that having taken place, um, you can expect the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment, at any time. Now, does anyone know the time? Okay, so be careful, would you folks? I mean, thank God for you. You're not uh, so naive as to run out and purchase the books of those who claim, who are claimed through their intricate mathematical calculations to pinpoint the time. Come on, come on, come on. We're not to know why. We're to live in light of its reality, but not its specific time, because if we knew of the specific time, we, we, we may not be so motivated to live as if it could be at any time. In fact, the text you looked at uh, over the last few Sundays, verse 39 of chapter 12, be sure of this. If the head of the if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That's a parable. Here's the application, verse forty. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now that ought to lay to rest any interest in date setting. Just that phrase, an hour you do not expect. Expect his return, but do not expect with specificity the hour of his return. 
We don't know that. Live in light of his return. So I want to ask you to, uh, to, to do something. Let's contrast the first coming of the Lord with the second coming of the Lord. Let's just have some fun. They're two, they're different. So, um, describe the first coming and maybe contrast it with the second. Anything pop into your mind? I don't know if I'm being too helpful to you here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first time lowly and in a manger, this is remarkable for the King of Kings. Say again. A helpless baby. Would you ever? This is unimaginable. The Most High God is a helpless baby. That's the first coming. Say more about that. A, a, a gentle lamb. He came to make peace, didn't he? Didn't he? Prince of Peace. What else about the first coming? You're doing good. You get. You have the general. Yes, sir. Uh, at the first time, with a sword. Now that's very interesting because later in the text we're going to speak about that. Thank you. That is a good observation. Thank you, sir. Now, what about the second coming? What that's going to be? What, what is that going to be like? Power and great glory and all the. He's a little different. So, so he came the first time on a donkey, right? Uh, in fulfillment of Zechariah, humble and mounted on a colt, even the foal of a donkey. He entered through the gates of Jerusalem uh, on a day we call Palm Sunday. Uh, now the book of Revelation tells us that the second coming, he'll be riding an, an, a, a what? A white horse, not a donkey. This is on purpose because in that day, a victorious conquering ruler would enter a city on a white horse. See, he came the first time. As a suffering servant, he comes the second as a victorious conqueror. Came the first time as the Lamb of God. Lambs are not ferocious. Lambs were offered in sacrifice. But he will come the second time as the Lion of Judah. A lion is an animal of a different sort entirely, don't you think? So here's the deal. If you're wrong about his first coming, you will be dead wrong about his second you got to get the first coming right. So Luke chapter 12 is about that. Get it right. Be expectant. Be prepared. If you're wrong about the first coming, you won't be living in light of the second. So you're going to see this. So, so take a look. Verse 41. Peter said, what a surprise. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us? Or to everyone else as well. If you read Luke 12, you'll see there's like a big crowd of people of every kind. There were believers, non-believers. There were these we call apostles. And then there were other non-apostles who, who believed in the Lord. It was kind of a mixed bag of everyone. Peter says, so, so essentially Peter says, you talking to me? That's essentially said, why do you do that? Uh, I'm just guessing here. I think he was uncomfortable with the conversation because in the prior verses, the Lord is saying, listen, uh, at the second coming, it's going to be really good. It's going to be blessing, but then it's not going to be good. It's going to be a blessing for those of you who have recognized me at the first coming. It's not going to be good for those of you who have denied me at my first coming. Peter's kind of getting a little uncomfortable the whole deal, I think. So he brings this up. You know, who does this apply to? And you'll notice the Lord does not give a direct answer. I think because he wants to keep Peter on the ropes. <laughs> he, <laughs> he wants to keep him a little uncomfortable. Uh, 
Because generally, yeah, it does apply to all people what the Lord is about to say. Here's what he says, verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? Two really, really good characteristics of someone put in charge. Faithfulness and sensibilities or wisdom. Your Bible may dis- have different words for these concepts. To be faithful is to be reliable, someone the master can count on. To be sensible is to have some sanctified common sense, you know, this kind of stuff. So the Lord says, who then is this, the faithful and sensible steward who is master? It's another parable here. A parable is like a story that tells the truth. Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. So, so he says, there is a certain guy put in in charge of a household by the master. And that guy has uh, is expected to to administrate the household in a good way with faithfulness and sensibility and to distribute the master's resources well to the others in the household so that they would be fed and nourished. Who is this one, the Lord said? Well, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Now, does that refer to Peter and the boys? Sure. And it refers to us. Sure. Be doing the right stuff when the Lord returns. Be good stewards of what he has asked you and I to do. Administrate the resources of God entrusted to you and to me in a way that leads to the nourishment of other people. Sure. But I want to make a point that the specific application of this text is to the Jewish religious leadership of ancient Israel. Hang in there with me. It seems like a jump, doesn't it? Listen to me. God, the God of Israel, expected the religious leaders of Israel to be good shepherds feeding the sheep. Let me ask you a question. Have they been? No. Not then, not now. You can go to Israel and see rabbis all over the place commanding astounding attention and having tremendous influence. Do you know a false religionist can do more harm than someone with a gun? You take a bullet, it affects your body. But if you're under the influence of a false religionist, your soul is affected. And the chief shepherd is not happy. So in Israel today, in Israel then, uh, those given the privileged position of being entrusted with resources to feed the flock of God have not. In fact, they've led them astray. I remember when my mother accepted the Lord some 30 years ago or more. She said to me, uh, I'm so angry. That's what she said. She said, they have lied to us. They have kept us in blindness. The they are the rabbis. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to go on a some crusade against the rabbis or anything. You know, we're not permitted that kind of uh, response. I just want you to know. Um, false religious leaders 
are not living in light of the return of the Lord because false religious leaders are not right about his first coming. They cannot possibly be right about his second. So the rabbis of my people are still looking for Messiah to come the first time because they denied he came the first. Therefore, they can't be living in light of his second coming. They don't believe he came the first time. And these are the ones primarily in view you'll see as the text unfolds. By application, it's not just Jewish religious leaders, folks. It's the leaders of world religions of all kinds masquerading as being in connection with God, but who have severed the connection with God, have no expectation of his specific return to rule and reign on earth because they have not embraced his first coming as sin's substitute. It is these who are leading people astray. Now, I mentioned my religious group because I feel the freedom to do that, but you fill in the blank. Um, the world religions <laughs> as alternatives to simple, pure faith and devotion in Jesus Christ are in the same category. A veneer of godliness. Listen to me. In Israel, it doesn't have to be Israel, it could be anywhere. You see more religious garb, holy Toledo. It is unbelievable. I don't mean just Jews. Um, Greek Orthodox priests, I mean, they look magnificent a long black robe Russian Orthodox are there do you know a ton of Israel is owned by different church groups it's quite interesting to see Catholic Church and and almost all of them are anti-Semitic almost everyone hates the Jews it's unbelievable to me but it's a democracy so they have freedom of religion all right anyway they're they're dressed in unbelievable ways some of them wear long I mean hats you can see them in a crowd. I mean, and they have long beards. I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm talking about other religionists. Then you have Eastern religions there. You have a tremendous Mormon influence in the land. Um, it just goes on and on. And, and the, the vestments, the religious accoutrements, the, the jewelry, the crosses, the this, the that. It really looks like piety and, and transcendence and apartness, apartness from profane. But if you have a conversation, you find out often they don't know the Lord Jesus as personal Savior for personal sin. They don't. They know religion. And they're not living in light of the hopeful expectation of the Lord's return, during which time all will give account because they have missed even his first, the significance of his first coming. So these are the ones kind of, in my opinion, you'll see in view here. Well, verse 44, truly I say to you, he, the master, will put him in charge of all his possessions. But the one who is a faithful, sensible steward, who is feeding the people of God, that one will be promoted to higher responsibility when the master returns. I think that's a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, during millennial meaning 1,000 years, during which time he comes to rule and reign from a throne in a temple 
in Jerusalem. And who is going to administer government with him? It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. It's not Libertarians. It's the people of God. And in accordance with the extent to which we have been faithful stewards of what he's given us to do here, he will give us more to do there. Faithfulness in little things begets higher responsibility in other things. So then the text goes on, verse 45. But If that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. He's not coming soon or ever. That's what he says. And as a result, begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. See, if this one is not living in light of the very imminent return of the master of Christ... What happens is it brings out the worst in us. And this one, not looking for the master's return, actually thinks he is the master and begins to exert mastery over the flock. We see this grotesquely in cult groups where the cult leader takes mastery over the flock. But you also see it in the world religions. You see it in the world. I don't have to name some because... I have a big mouth, but all the world all the world religions are contrary to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Every single one. They tell you what foods you can and cannot eat, how you're supposed to bow down, how you're supposed to dr- every religion, every single one. I mentioned mine. Maybe you come from one of a different kind. But anyway... This person, not living in a hopeful expectation of the master, usurps the role of the master, taking advantage of those who he or she is supposed to feed and instead engages in self-indulgence. Look, eats and drinks and gets drunk, misuses time and resources and engages in grotesque self-indulgence. See, he doesn't have an expectation of the master's return the second time because he has minimized the the master's coming the first time. He just doesn't see any of that. And so he's living as if he himself is, he's wearing a mask of godliness, a mask of godliness. You know what I think? The more formal and liturgical religious practice is, oftentimes it betrays less intimacy with Almighty God. Now, I'm not against formality. Don't misunderstand. A lot of that is a function of personality. I'm talking when a whole religion requires a measure of liturgy and all the rest where... See, in my background, but it's true of every ism, in Judaism, do you know I couldn't really have a collective worship service unless we had a minion, a quorum of ten men? But now that I've been set free from religiosity in Christ Jesus, I worship the Lord in my Honda Civic on the way from Pearland to Houston to this morning. It was just me. I don't have vestments. I would look rather foolish. I would look like a little boy wearing his father's clothing. But I don't have nothing. 
I just got, I'm not, don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to suggest a mode of dress. I'm just trying to tell you oftentimes those things are a mask of godliness. But they deny, deny the power thereof. So you see that all over Israel. You see it increasingly here. Anytime the president has a prayer breakfast, it's very interesting to see the assemblage of those who go. I, I'm not against that. Don't misunderstand. Please don't misunderstand. That's a good thing. I'm just saying you see an array of religious groupings and you have to, you're hard-pressed to pick out the born-again clergy in the group. Every time we have a national day of prayer, and whether it be here, there, or anywhere, you've got to have the, this cleric say a word and that cleric say By the time you go down the line, where is the simple born-again believer who's wearing blue jeans and a sweatshirt but knows Almighty God? What is the deal with all these people with all these outfits and stuff like that who you know don't have a clue as to who the Messiah is? So that's what's kind of going on over over here. It's a mask of religiosity and godliness. Well, anyway, it goes on in verse 46 to say, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And are you ready for this? Well, why don't you read it? What does it say? Well, cut him in pieces. That's what it says, right? Maybe your Bible says, we'll tear asunder. Same idea. The Greek word is dichotomous. From the word dichotomy, a division. Not only that, he will assign him. So he doesn't actually die and he tur- uh, in the sense that death is uh, permanent. He's cut in pieces, but then assigned a place with the unbelievers. Now listen to me. If you're a believer, you will never be assigned a place with the unbelievers. Why? Because it's the place of the unbelievers. Now some people take this to, to substantiate their false belief in the forfeiture of your salvation. This is not talking about saved ones. This is talking about religious ones, false shepherds who have all the outward indicators of godliness but don't know God. They're just religious leaders. They're not in a relationship with the Father through the Son. The reason they're assigned a place with the unbelievers is that they are unbelievers. What? How could these religious people be said to be unbelievers? That's a thing we have a hard time swallowing. But there's a big, big difference between being part of a religion and part of the body of Christ. Big, big difference. Big 
big difference. So, so, so this is not talking about believers at all because a believer, listen to me, a believer can mess up and miss opportunities here and misuse the resources, time and money that the Lord has given us. And then you know what happens to that believer when the Lord returns? That believer is disciplined and is made to feel saddened and sorrowful over squandered opportunities. But that believer is never assigned a place with unbelievers. That believer is disciplined by a loving heavenly father. Now the believer deserves to be cut us, torn asunder, but the fullness of the wrath of God has been poured out on the son. It's all about what Jesus did, not what you do or what I do. I don't have to add to what he did on the cross for me. He said it is finished. It's over. And though I am unfaithful, he remains faithful. So, so, anyway, this is what it's talking about over here in verse 47. And that slave who knew his master's will and didn't get ready. Now, wait, you're going to see more, not today, but in next week as well, because I'm stretching this out, Brother Chuck, as long as I could. You know what I mean? Because I got the jet lag thing and, you know, I'm milking that. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not, I'm not. Uh, it, it, it's just a good text. We'll spend a little more time. But um, see, the slave who knew his master's will. Now, there's a strong implication there. Listen, God will never judge people for what they don't know, but he will hold them responsible for the right response to what they do know. Now, if I'm correct, and this is primarily targeting Jewish religious leaders, how much do they know? A ton to them has been entrusted. The oracles, the prophets, the word of God. The most spiritually privileged people on earth are my people. And they, we have squandered the privilege. God will not judge Jewish religious leaderships, uh, religiously on the basis of what they don't know. They read Isaiah. They read, we studied Jeremiah in here. They got Jeremiah. They had the Jewish Messiah, Jewish, not Italian, not Irish, Yeshua, born in Bethlehem, Jewish in every respect, going up to the temple. Mama's name was Miriam. Daddy's name, Joseph. You know, I mean, as Jewish as Jewish can be. They had him. And he did the things only Messiah could do. The lame walk. The blind received their sight. This was not showmanship. This was a fulfillment of all that which the Jewish prophets said. And my people impaled him on a tree. So, and that slave who knew his master's will, and didn't get ready or act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Now, what does this mean? I'll say stuff that I think will cause some controversy. In terms of eternity, in my uh, not my opinion, the scriptures give us two options. Eternal eternity with the giver of life, that's called heaven. Eternity apart from the giver of life, that's called hell. There's nothing, I don't know of other options. 
religionists speak of middle grounds, purgatory and stuff like that. But the Bible doesn't speak of that. Two options. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God is one or the other option. However, within those two options, I think there are measures of reward or punishment. So I think there are measures of punishment in hell, just as there are measures of reward in heaven. Because God is a just God. And the one who has committed mass murder or terribly uh, perverted uh, acts of criminal degradation, maybe against children, I don't know, is surely going to be treated differently than the person sinful and a rejecter of Savior. Uh, One is going to receive punishment of a different sort than the other, though it's still hellacious to be assigned a place with unbelievers. And I think the converse is true as well. Heaven is going to be a glorious, blissful, forever experience, and yet I think God will disseminate rewards therein in accordance with faithfulness here. These are, I think, what's called the crowns. You read a lot of these in the crown of righteousness, the crown of this, crown of that, that kind of Thing. So I think it's alluding to that. Why? Because it says here, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. My people have received more revelation than any other people group on earth. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Okay. So one of our class members uh, came up to me earlier and mentioned that our president has made reference to this passage of Scripture recently, I think at the prayer breakfast, to whom much is given, much is, will be required. And he used this as the basis of his uh, exhortation for there to be a more equitable distribution of financial resources, you know, taxes being paid uh, more equitably by those at the top to help those at the bottom. That is not what this text has a thing to do with. Now, regardless of politics here and your point of view on economics, when a president of the United States so frivolously distorts the contextual meaning of Scripture, he is one who's subject to the judgment of God because he knows the Bible. He knows verses and he knows how to use it in certain religious settings but does not put himself under it this is not a political statement i'm trying to tell you that's an example of someone to whom much is given much in judgment will be required now he's not the first to do that don't misunderstand every president does it usually in their inauguration speech because it's poetry, biblical poetry. But even in referencing the scriptures, they betray an awareness of the existence of the scriptures and their value. If they do that, they have just indicted themselves. It's like, have you ever seen these awards things that Hollywood people or music people get? You you know, the MTV awards or the Oscar awards or something. A lot of them, they say, well, first I want to thank God. You know how they do that? They just indicted themselves because they just said, I believe in the existence of a singular God. I believe he is above and I believe uh, I can make attribution 
to my present state of well-being to him. Now, if you do that, but are living contrary to his will, you just indicted yourself. It's that kind of person this text is talking about. A veneer of godliness, but no legitimate connection to God. Those are people who are judged in accordance with what they know. God doesn't judge people on the basis of what they don't know. He judges people on the basis of what they do know. Almost every American knows of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you how I know this. Because liberal, godless, Hollywood sitcom people make fun of him all the time. That tells me they know of him. They cast, they make allusions to his salvific work. They make fun. But in so doing, they tell me they know. But it's not me they have to give account to. It's the master when he returns. In accordance with what they know. So people say, yeah, but what about the person in the midst of India who never heard? God holds people accountable in accordance with the revelation he has given. So anyway, it says this, verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Who's who's speaking there? Are you kidding me? I thought he came to save and to make peace and all that stuff. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. By the way, see the word fire? It takes place like in the middle of the sentence, but not in the Greek. The word fire is right up front. Why? In the Greek, whatever is up front gets the emphasis. Here's the actual translation. Fire I have come to bring. Fire. What fire? The word fire is used in various ways in the Bible. In the good sense, remember tongues of fire coming down at Pentecost? But in this context, it's the fire of judgment. Read Luke 12. When he returns, he brings judgment. It's the fire of judgment. And this Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says, I've come to cast this fire of judgment upon the earth. Not only does he say this, he says, I look forward to it. I wish it were already kindled. Now, how can you reconcile this with our notion that he's a gentle lamb and a loving God who's come to make peace? How do you explain this? Any thoughts? Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think. He came the first time to make peace. The only war he waged the first time was against sin. The second time he wages war against the sinner. If one minimizes or discounts his first visit, that one will experience his fiery judgment at his second visit. Lamb, lion, humble on a donkey, white horse. Totally different. He came to make peace for sure between God and man. But if man rejects the offer of peace, that man has put himself in a war with Almighty God. 
And this Jesus said, fire of judgment I will bring. And he said here, I wish you were already kindled. Is he bloodthirsty? Does he want the pain and suffering of it all? No. Listen. There are two prerequisites before the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. One is the salvation of the saved. The second is the judgment of those who refuse salvation. They both must take place before the Lord Jesus rules and reigns from a throne in Jerusalem. Judgment is as much a part of his mission as is salvation, and we don't like it. And many theologians, even he's not a theologian, but a known pastor in our area, finds this concept of the judgment of God against sin to be so distasteful that even when interviewed, he he stumbles over his own words. He can't get it out. I'm telling you, try as you will to extricate from the mission of Christ the fire of judgment, but you will fail. It's just as much a part of his mission as his salvation. That's the way it is. He's going to come and judge. And he wants it to happen sooner rather than later because it has to happen before he makes all things new. Remember I told you it has to get worse before it gets better? Welcome to the worse, the fire of God's judgment on earth. But I have to tell you something. You and I ought to welcome it as much as we did the salvation he ushered in at his first coming because this has to take place before you and I are ushered into God's kingdom on earth with Jesus at the head, not an elected official making promises he or she cannot keep not a corrupt world leader who not only is not the solution to the problems, but is pretty much the part of the cause thereof, but one whose kingdom and government is based on righteousness, goodness, and a loving kindness, and virtue, and ethics, and holiness. Before that all, and there's not a person here who doesn't long for it. We long for it. We're, we're, we're shriveling up. We're, we're getting increasingly cynical, disgusted with what's going on. We can't hardly find anyone we're very confident in to lead us politically. They're few and far between, but it's not just the United States. It's the leadership in Israel, in I- Iran, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Egypt, in Libya, in Canada, in Greece, in France, in Italy. You see this is happening across the world, uh, the, 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 the constituency is losing interest and confidence in their leadership. World economies, not just the United States, world economies are in total disarray. There's more unsettled, and it can happen just like this. Uh, a leader can be deposed in a second. People could take to the streets. It's not just Occupy Wall Street. It's anarchy. Anarchy says, I don't have a better approach. I just don't like any approach that has been suggested. This is quite fascinating. We should learn from the Occupy movement, and that is there's nothing behind it. 
except dismay, hopelessness, cynicism. It was fascinating to me when the occupiers, they're still being interviewed. What's up? Why are you so upset? It's one of a million things, depending on who you ask. It's everything. You know, it's it's a vegetarian diet. It's eat more carrots. It's the Jewish banking interest. We always get locked into that. I mean, uh, it's I mean, why? It's because it's everything. It's nothing. You know what it is? A big gaping hole. Lack of confidence, hope, and trust in what is, and so. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, I know what you want. You want the consummation of your salvation, but you also want judgment on sin because how could your heavenly repose be heavenly if it is characterized by the presence of sin and sinners? You want me to make a dichotomy between the saved and the unsaved so that you could enjoy blissful heavenly experience with me, settledness forever to make up for your unsettledness now. You are in effect pleading with me to come and judge the earth dwellers. And he said, I will. It's going to happen. Do you realize how important it is to be on the Lord's side? Do you Do you realize how important it is to see the significance of his first coming so that you say maranatha with regard to his second come quickly Lord Jesus. You're not one who's holding it off at arm's length. You're not one acting as if it's an unreality. You're someone who gets up every morning and who says, there is no hope for us, but the hope with which we will be affected when you, the God of all hope, return. Do you see how important it is to rightly interpret his first coming? so that you do not fear his second. Be sure you have accepted the Savior so that you can rejoice in the triumphant King, your Savior, when he returns and not cower in fear. Make sure that when it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess, yours is not under constraint Yours is willingly and joyously. Make sure you say, I know him before whom I bow. He's Abba. He's my father. My father is big, the best. He is right. And he's straightening out everything we have corrupted. Very, very, this is not about church. It's not about religion. It's about you being an in right alignment with the giver of life as opposed to being an adversary of the giver of life. I'm telling you, he's waiting to unleash the fire of his judgment. It will happen. You don't want it to befall you. Accept him. Could I tell you something? If you're a visitor here today, you're in trouble because you've heard about Jesus Christ to whom much is given 
Much is required. You're without excuse. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming again. We're simply in between. Help us to so live with expectancy and readiness for your soon return. Salt, light, living in a way that pleases you. You're not calling us to die on a cross. Once is enough. You took our place. You're calling upon us to live for you in this very, very unsettled, confusing day. More religiosity in the world than ever before. Less vibrant, personal devotion to you. Father, would you light the fire of your spirit in us so that we would be salt, which preserves righteousness, and light, which reveals darkness in this world for as long as you tarry. Thank you for rescuing us. Is everyone here rescued and redeemed? I hope so. I pray so. I would ask you, O God, to extend your saving arms and grab on to the one, the two, the others who have not yet said, forgive me, Lord Jesus. I owe you a debt I cannot pay. I have sinned against you who do not sin. Come into my life. Make me new from the inside out. You have suffered and died for me. Enough. I don't have to add to it. I just have to live with gratitude in terms of it. Give me hope of your second coming, not fear. Cast all my sins behind your back. Adopt me into your forever family. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, one of the things we would love to do as ministers in your church is talk to you about the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church. We're available to you today. We're available to you during the week. We're a phone call or email away. Your eternity is more important than our schedules. Please don't think you're imposing upon us. If you have questions about who this Lord Jesus is, contact us. We'll get together with you. God bless you folks. If the Lord tarries, see you next week.